Hi, podcast listener. Welcome to Truth About Exits, a show dedicated to pulling back the curtain to reveal what it really takes to get deals closed. You'll hear directly from founders of companies who have raised capital, sold their companies, and even those who acquire other companies for growth. I'm your host, Corin Woodmass. I'm a dealmaker, advisor, and when I'm not closing deals, I love to talk to others about their deals and what it took to get them closed. And now you can listen into these conversations too. For all the show notes and more resources, go to truthaboutexits.com. And we're live. Today, I have Shaquille on the line. He's a fellow Austin-based entrepreneur. Shaquille, thanks for jumping on the call today. Corin, thanks for having me. <laughs> awesome. I've been wanting to get you on the show for a little while here. And fortunately, you reached out to me first, which is awesome. <laughs> so thanks for that. Just as an overview of why you might be interested in today's call, I'll just give you a quick snippet of what Shaquille's been up to. So Shaquille's grown his 12 e-commerce brands to over $25 million in revenue in 2018. And most of that has been via acquisition. So that's what we'll be talking about on today's call is e-commerce and acquiring e-commerce brands. But first, I'm always interested to ask when people ask you what you do, because you have so much going on business-wise, how do you actually answer that question? You know, I feel like it's a different answer every time, including yesterday's networking event. What do I do? But generally, I usually answer with, I'm a e-commerce acquisition investor. So I buy a bunch of brands is in a nutshell. And usually that's not good enough. So there's follow-up questions on what that means. <laughs> exactly. Well, we'll dig into that, into what that actually means on today's call. But I always like hearing how people answer that. So thanks for that. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So how did you get started in e-commerce in the first place? Yeah, I sort of have a boring story really that got me into it. I never had the intention of buying a bunch of companies. I never had the intention of having 12 brands like this and a big team like this. It all really started off in 2012 when after I graduated my MBA, this was in 2013, I went online to search for jobs to have. So I was just in the market to have a new job and, and after my MBA. And, and I came across a link that said, own an e-commerce brand or start an e-commerce brand. And I knew nothing about e-commerce. I knew nothing about SEO, web development. And so the only way I could learn this is by watching what other people do. So I went on Odesk, which is now Upwork, and I just started hiring a bunch of people to build a website. But I had no product. So the only thing I knew to do was people import from China. Why don't I just go to China? So I went to the Canton Fair in 2013 you know, and this is where there's over 60,000 boots there. It's super overwhelming. I had no plan, but I just walked down the aisle back and forth, met with vendors, and I finally decided to import men's accessories like tie clips, cufflinks, socks, watches, wallets, because they're small items. And I figured e-pack, it's the easiest way to go. And so I started importing that, built my website up learned about SEO, learned about content, learned about best practices, just really just by researching and seeing what competitors are doing, what other folks are doing, and just sort of learning along the way. After about a year, 
of finally making it profitable, right? So it took me a year to get things going, to make it cash flow positive. I had a choice of either being a consultant and telling people how to start a business, growing the current men's accessory website, or the third option was seeing if I could buy a complementary brand to really propel the growth. And the third one, this last option sort of just came along the way. So I came across a listing uh, through okay, a broker. Just w- one sec, one sec. <laughs> I've got to jump in before we go into the acquisitions. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I just want to highlight something here. So you made that sound so easy. <laughs> but one thing that I noticed with successful entrepreneurs that perform at a high level versus someone who just wants to become an entrepreneur or entrepreneur basically is they will take some time to learn how to do e-commerce first and then come up with a list of reasons why they can't do it. You actually started by saying, I want to do something online and built a website first. You went and got people to build it for you first and then said, I need products, so went to China. So they're not small steps, but what was the driving reason behind you saying, well, I want to go source some products, let's go to China? What was the mindset behind that? Honestly, it was probably a lack of knowledge. When you don't know what you're doing you just do it and I think that's where uh, sometimes people struggle is too much information makes them a bit more confused on what to do next right and like you said people will come up with reasons on why not to do it for me it was just you know I, I wanted to sell products online I knew that people selling on Amazon and other marketplaces even their website people were just getting most of their products to China And going on Alibaba or AliExpress, it just felt a little overwhelming. So I just said, hey, let me just go to China, make a vacation out of it, and see if I could source products through it was just generally my reasoning. Wow, that's pretty awesome. So other than the products, the men's accessories being small and easy to ship, was there anything else driving that? Was it a a niche that you were interested in or you thought, hey, I could get into this type of product? Or was there some other other factors behind that choice yeah so my criteria was to pick something really laser focused in a niche that wouldn't have high competition that was cheap so anything about five bucks and that was small so that was it and so men's accessories was one thing i also looked at i think it was sunglasses at that point it was like office supplies I think those were the three or four things I saw, but men's accessories just sounded really cool. I figured, you know, people like to dress nicely. If they buy one cufflink or one tie clip, they'll buy multiple. It was small. It was easy to ship. So I just, you know, decided on that. And again, I had done no market research to see if it was even going to sell well. Like, I think luck played a huge part in this coin. Like, I had no idea what I was doing. Wow, that's awesome. Well, sometimes you don't need a ton of information. You just need the bare minimum and then go get started. So you took that leap. So you probably, in hindsight, you may have got better pricing by going direct to China and built those relationships. Are you still using those relationships from that first trip to China or have you been back since as well? Oh, yeah. So I've kept those relationships up and I've gone to China multiple times now planning to go again at the end of the year but you know going there is just it's a lot of fun the culture there is fun Uh, negotiating pricing there is it's just fun Uh, you know they take you out 
they'll uh you know over order on the food it's just a fun vibe to be part of <laughs> cool and why not have some fun with our businesses at the same time right <laughs> it exactly. doesn't all have to be spreadsheets and being strict so i like that Awesome. Okay, well, let's fast forward. As you started, you started looking for an e-commerce business to buy. So you said that you had three options there. Were you playing out those three options at the same time to see what the best option was? Yeah, so I felt like I got a little smarter now. So I decided to do some market research and, you know, I I put out a Facebook post saying anyone that wants to learn about e-commerce, you know, message me or email me. I'm glad to help. That didn't really garner any interest. (laughs) (laughs) My second option was to grow my brand Pro Cuffs. And, you know, that just, at that point, honestly, I could have really just automated that. And that seemed a lot more appealing than growing it. And so the third option was just the best option for me, which was to acquire a company. Okay. And just a little background on that. My dad's an entrepreneur too, and that's what he's done is he buys hotels and convenience stores and stuff. So that little kind of fire in me was sort of instilled as I was growing up in my childhood. So that sort of helped play a role in acquiring companies. Wow, that's an awesome role model to have there. As your dad's been successful in the acquisition side, it's no wonder you followed his footsteps. Yeah. Okay, so you started looking at e-commerce businesses for sale. So do you remember roughly how many deals you looked at before finding the one to move forward with? Corin, I bought my first deal that I looked at. <laughs> and uh, this is something I advise everyone not to do is do not buy the first company you see for sale. I had at that time, paralysis by analysis. So numbers look good. Let's just buy it. It was a website called mrcole.com. They were selling beverage coolers. Really crappy website. Didn't know marketing. It was all organic traffic. Never sold on Amazon. And so, you know, anyone that buys the website would do what I did, which was list the products on Amazon turn on AdWords. And that's all I did, those two strategies. And I was able to make my money back in six months. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so is that your investment criteria now? You just see a deal for sale and go buy it? (laughs) No, no, absolutely not. I think I look at over, at least I look at over 100 deals a month right now before Mm -hmm. I get any interest. I mean, I have this whole model of acquisitions now so i'm a lot more selective now Mm -hmm. and in the early days were you using cash for the acquisitions were you using debt in those first couple of acquisitions yeah so the first few acquisitions were all cash deals for me at that time 2014 i don't think sba loans or holdbacks or seller financing were as prevalent as they are today at least in the deals i was looking at And so there were a lot of cash deals. The first four deals I did were cash deals. Mm -hmm. Okay. And were they all around the similar size? I believe the first one was around 50, 60,000, something like that. Yeah. The first deal was $52,000. And the second one was like around $120,000. And the third one was around like 200. So I, I just kept making it bigger and bigger. And really what I was doing was just using the cash flows from the previous business to buy these other businesses. Again, I was just trying to grow them as quick as possible, get even more cash flow, 
and buy larger businesses was the early day model for me. Okay, that sounds like a pretty solid strategy and really safe if you're using cash flow from your existing businesses. So how long before that model changed to incorporate debt and what was the thought behind that? Yeah, so I realized the smaller deals between, you know, if you're buying anywhere in the six-figure range, buying a business for $200,000 or $800,000, they're going to have very similar processes. You know, they're going to have smaller teams opportunities for growth the model for me i thought looked very similar the work behind it was the same and so i decided like i don't want to keep buying these smaller businesses i want to go after larger deals but i didn't have that kind of cash i did not have eight hundred thousand dollars sitting in my bank account i wish i did and so i started researching different ways you can finance your deal so the first deal i ended up buying where i used financing I held my other company's cash flows as collateral. So I went to a local bank here, told them, look, I have these businesses as cash flow. Can I hold them as collateral and get a loan off that? It took about four months to convince a bank to do that. And I went to a bunch of banks. And finally, I got one bank to take that for me. And so they gave me a half a million dollar loan to go buy a business. Wow. Yeah. That's great. And did you have any partners at the time or was it still just yourself? So right when I started using financing, I added on two partners, Nimrose and and Pervez, who I met through a Facebook group. And our first acquisition we did together, we took on a loan. That was how that started. Okay, cool. So you spread the risk, bought in some partners, and did they have skills to bring to the table as well? Or were they more capital providers? So they were already in e-commerce and they really, really complemented the skill set that I had. I felt like I was, I did things really quickly. I was not detail oriented. I wanted to focus on two or three growth goals and really just automate things. And they were the detail oriented. They were the operators. And so it really just helped mesh that acquisition and the following acquisitions we did. I think that's one of the key success factors of our portfolio is picking good partners that actually complement you. And I've heard horror stories that partnerships don't work out. And I've heard stories that partnerships do work out. And I think having a good partner really helps build a business together. Yeah, absolutely. And having complementary skills is really important to you want to cover your weaknesses with someone who's really strong in that side of things. So how did your deal structures change over time? So from what was the biggest change, let's say, from doing an all cash deal to using financing or debt along the way? Yeah, so there's two things. One, it was a mindset shift. So now I was using Bank Bunny. I had to make sure that I had money in the bank to be making those monthly payments, number one. And number two was, yeah, the deal structure changed. So we were able to give you know, more of the asking price. We were able to beat out other people also trying to get that deal by using financing. So some of the deal financing that we've used, I just talked about one, which is using my other cash flows as collateral. A really popular one is SBA loans right now where a lot of people are using you know, government-backed loans through banks. And the great part about that is you could buy a business as low as 10% down, 
right? So you're getting that 90% financing done at 8% or 7%. I think it's 8.25 right now. But if you're buying at a three, three and a half X multiple, that's a really good return on your money. That's a 30% return on your money and you're borrowing at 8%. So that's where the math really started making sense to me. And I started being really aggressive in acquiring companies through debt. Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent. And have you had any bumps along the way? I'm sure it hasn't all been plain sailing, specifically when it comes to debts. So this is something I talk to people a lot about this and covering debt over the longer term is a concern. So have you had any bumps along the way? And how do you think about structuring the deal to minimize your downside? Yeah, the bumps we've had wasn't necessarily on the financing side. It was just buying bad deals. It was not asking the right questions. I'll give you an example. One of the businesses that we bought, their accounting was based off cash flow model. Or, and so instead of accrual. Cash accounting. Exactly. And so they bought a ton of inventory last year, right? And the financials that they showed was this year. And so if you look at this year's financials, they look really healthy. The cash flows are super high. I didn't really take into account that process of inventory. So this year looks really good. Let's buy the business. When in theory, I should have kind of taken a accrual accounting approach to this. And, you know, you pay a multiple off that cash flow basis and it looks really high and, you know, running it, the actual cash that comes back to you is way lower now as we're growing it. So, you know, you have to take into account the different accounting models, number one. Number two was the research, the due diligence process where one of the businesses we bought, we didn't really do a good job on the research on the technical SEO side of things where the owner did a lot of black hat SEO, a lot of gray hat SEO. And when a new Google algorithm came out, our organic traffic tanked. And this is a business where we were getting 70% of traffic through organic. And so when you have that much traffic coming through organic and that dips, it gets really hard to then start making debt payments. It gets hard to, you know, paying even people's salaries and stuff. So, yeah, I've definitely learned a lot through these acquisitions. And that's why I look at so many deals now is I don't buy the first deal like I did my very (laughs) first time. It's just being smarter about things, honestly, Corn. It's just asking about the right questions. It's seeing what fits your skill set, right? Maybe someone with really good SEO could have fixed that problem, but that wasn't my skill set at that time. Okay, excellent. And I know you have quite a large operations team now. So how do you think about acquisitions and your criteria now that you have an operations team? And we might dig into that as well. Yeah. So the way our operations look is I still like looking at the deal flow that's where my enjoyment comes out of. So I spend a lot of my time looking at deals compared to my partners. So I I still bring in the deal. I still bring in the deal flow. As far as the deals we like to buy, yes, the criteria has changed from when we first started acquiring companies, but they have to be at least five years in business. And the reason why we've picked this is because during those five years, they've had a lot of you know, failed strategies that we can learn from. They have a lot of assets. They have built a lot of relationships. And if we need to get a loan, 
it has enough, you know, years of tax returns if a bank needs them. So we definitely want to make sure that it's aged company. Number two is just to cash flow. So we like to buy businesses that are at least cash flowing $300,000 in profit. And the reason for that is, again, for the first six months, we spend a lot of money just growing the company. We hire a bunch of folks. We hire a CEO to run the company. And we need those cash flows to pay for all of that, including financing. So we've picked that as a baseline for us to be comfortable acquiring a company. I think, yeah, those two things are pretty much my biggest things for me. It could be any product. It could be any niche. It could be any model. As long as it's e-commerce, we will definitely take a look at something if it fits those two criteria. That makes sense. So, yeah, you've got a a strict high-level criteria that you go with and then obviously looking at the deal, deal by deal, whether it actually makes sense on top of that. Now, when we first spoke about this one, when I got to Austin last year and we had lunch, you were talking about one of the acquisitions where some of the operations team were in a different state. And I know you have an office here in Austin as well, but you said that you didn't want to move those operations teams and they were really an advantage so could you talk through a little bit if you can about that process and how that's integrated over time yeah so you know any acquisition that anyone does if it's not in your home city if it's not in your headquarters you have a choice of rehiring those folks or moving those folks to your headquarters for us this acquisition we did they were based out of virginia and you know initially when we thought about it, we just figured, yeah, you know, it'd be good moving those eight to 10 folks to back to our headquarters in Houston. And after we acquired this company, we met with those folks. They were incredibly smart, loyal folks. This business has been around for 20 years, and many of them have been around for eight to 10 years at the company. So they're extremely loyal, number one. Number two, they were efficient and they knew the business in and out. So, you know, I did not want to just kind of ruffle the feathers and move these folks over. It was in my best interest to keep the employees there. And and what we decided to do was the CEO would just work out of our Virginia office. And so that team included customer service reps. We had a web developer. We had an IT team. You had accounts payable, accounts receivable. So, you know, we had a really nice team there that I just did not want to move things around. And you know, they're amazing folks to work with and they've helped really grow the company and they've really embraced the new ownership that came along with me acquiring it. So it's been a good journey for that one. So what advice would you give to someone that is looking to acquire a company with staff in place? Some of the folks looking at e-commerce love it because of the low staff requirement. But if you have staff in place, like you found in Virginia there, what steps did you take to other than going and meeting the people on the team, what else were you looking for as far as skill sets in the team? Yeah, honestly, there was that challenge of how do I make sure these folks are doing their job properly, right? They were so used to someone being the owner there in the office, making sure that they do a job. And now I'm not be in the Virginia office, right? So I had to build that trust with them, number one. Number two is just making sure that they're actually doing their job. So if, if someone's out there looking to buy an e-commerce brand and it's not in your home office, you're going to have to create processes and procedures and SOPs to make sure that they're doing their job. 
we have a check-in and check-out process right now. We moved everything from server to cloud. We have weekly calls. And then I hired someone that will go to the office every day that manages that office, right? So all those things combined with trust is a huge component to making things successful and to making things just run seamlessly, really. Okay, that makes sense. And you mentioned you had a a CEO or manager for each of the brands individually. So what do you look for in that role? So I usually like to find someone definitely experienced, someone with e-commerce experience. But I found someone that comes from a agency, a marketing agency that has had some kind of senior role in there has been the best candidate. And I say that because someone that's been part of an agency, they have the marketing experience, whether it's through SEO or ads or whatever it is. And then two, they have that management experience because they've had junior marketing folks underneath them. So they know how to handle folks. They know how to grow their team. They know how to grow their client base and they have their marketing experience. So that all together fits that perfect sort of CEO candidate that could run the company for me, that could grow the website or Amazon business for me. And so those two characteristics are really important to make a good CEO for me. That makes a ton of sense, obviously, but clearly the digital marketing person, if they're dealing with multiple clients, would have to get pretty good at project management as well and dealing with a lot of stakeholders, keeping the balls or the plates in the air, plates spinning, (laughs) so to speak. So that makes a lot of sense. Okay, cool. So let's switch gears back into the deal and talk about the show is Truth About Exit. So we like to get a little bit deep on a deal. Could you tell us about your toughest deal to close? Toughest deal to close. Let's see. Not all of them have been smooth sailing either. I'm trying to think through. Yeah, probably my last acquisition was really hard. It was long. You know, to really make a deal flow well, you have to have respect and trust between a buyer and seller. When you lack one or the other, it's really hard to close the deal. So we did have that struggle in our last deal where the seller was very, he wasn't hiding things, but he was very protective about the information. And and that makes sense. But when you're selling a business, when you're into due diligence, we all expect an open book and we weren't getting that. So that made the deal really hard to really understand the business and get it to closing. Right. Yeah. We often advise our clients that that's really the time to be as open and honest as possible. Sometimes we have clients that want to piecemeal out information, but we've found that that actually slows the deal down. So I totally agree with you there. Yeah. I mean, that was one company. I remember another company that I bought in the early days where I actually kept the seller on as a partner. And, you know, at that time I just said, Hey, you know, this guy is really good at marketing. Let me just keep him on. What ended up happening is we never signed any good contracts. We never had any partnership agreements in place. And so six months down the line, my partner just said, hey, Shaquille, the company's good. I don't want to work anymore. I'm just going to collect the distribution. And I was like, it doesn't work like that. We're partners. You have to put it, you know, what you're good at. And he was right. He didn't have to do anything. But And it was because we never signed a good contract agreement in place. And, you know, again, that was another learning point. But 
when you buy any deal, you want to make sure not only is your asset purchase agreement there, your consulting agreement there, but if you bring on a partner, you have a good partnership agreement in place that even talks about, you know, a shotgun rule where you both, you know, call out a price and whoever has the highest price has to buy them out at that price. We never had anything like that. And so I had to bring arbitration. We had to get a third-party valuation done. It was a nightmare. But I learned along the way that having good contracts in place can really save or break a deal. Absolutely. Yeah, on the partnership front, it all sounds interesting on the front end or a no-brainer if someone's operating the business well and they're happy to stay in the business. But yeah, oftentimes you don't think about what goes sideways. So yeah, that's a good reminder. So I guess contracts is one thing, but is there anything else you'd do differently if you were to go back and start again from zero? Yeah, honestly, the amount of data, the amount of deals coming into the marketplace, there's a lot. And sometimes deals look too good to be true. And so, you know, I think one of the things if I were to start it off or, you know, advice I'd give to get to people right now looking at a deal is number one, don't buy your first deal. Number two, understand what you're good at. If you're good at Amazon, if you're good at Facebook marketing, if you're good at funnels or email marketing, use that skill set and find a company that has a void in that but it'll take patience. When you combine your skill set with the void in a company, you're able to build much more value and the valuation of your company goes way higher. Definitely being patient, finding a business that fits your skill set and not just buying something for the numbers is two pieces of advice I would give to myself buying and to anyone that's looking to buy a business. That's super solid advice. Sometimes you get really excited at the beginning phase of going out there and looking for companies and you start seeing a few and your mind just races with so many opportunities, right? You just want to dive right in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, absolutely. As entrepreneurs or people trying to jump into entrepreneurs, everyone has the shiny rock syndrome. You know, they look at a prospectus and they see, oh, something's making $100,000 and you could buy it for $300,000. That's super cheap. I want to buy this. Someone that looks at an Amazon business thinks operations are so easy. Someone fulfills it, gives customer service, takes the inventory. That is awesome. I want to buy it. But there's a lot more under the hood besides those two aspects. And I think just getting excited causes people to make the wrong decisions. And I think just taking a step back, being patient, helps make those smarter decisions. Hmm. And I'm curious, you mentioned that you found partners with other skill sets or complementary skill sets would you work on building a team before going to acquire or would you look for acquisitions where like the company in Virginia where you had some operations teams in place that you could leverage for your future deals yeah I would definitely do the latter which is buying a company that comes with the operations and I say that because you sort of your headache is much lower, I feel like, as long as the team that comes with it is on board with your vision. For me, just buying a company, there's a lot more that comes with the, besides the operations. There's the brand aspect of it. There's the growth aspect of it. There's even hiring folks. And so when there's a team that comes with it, the business, 
that understands the business, that creates a lot more comfort for me in, in acquiring something. When you buy something, there's a lot of knowledge sharing, a lot of knowledge transfer that happens. And when a team comes with it, it just makes it that much easier to buy that business. Hmm. And for the most part, do you see plain and simple that the larger the business is, the more operations there is? Or do you sometimes see deals where they're potentially overstaffed and then you can use those operations as shared services with your other brands? Yeah. So in fact, both. The second option of looking for inefficiencies, cutting out the fat is you know, something that would really excite me to buy that business, right? If someone has, you know, 10 folks doing customer service, you know, a SEO team, a web developer, and I already have that in-house, well, those are expenses I could just cut out and bring those folks within my team. Now, I will say that I wouldn't just cut out someone right away, though. It, you know, everyone brings a unique skill set. There's a reason why they're still hired. But I always do look for inefficiencies on ways we could, you know, reduce overhead while still growing the company. But yeah, I'm always surprised to see the types of deals out there where I just don't understand why some owners aren't either utilizing a certain marketing strategy or B, not cutting out the fat. I think some owners just get used to sailing along. They're on cruise control and they're just happy with how business is going. Yeah, absolutely. We often see a lot of owners that have other projects they're working on or they're off to the next thing. Maybe there's a bigger opportunity. So sometimes the business they're thinking of selling hasn't really been 100% focused on for some time or maybe they've taken their foot off the pedal or their eye off the ball, so to speak, in that sense. And then you can come in. I really like your approach of or your advice of coming in with what is doing a stock take on yourself first and figuring out what you're best at and then buying a business that would you would bring something to the table. I often refer to this as an unfair advantage. When you're on the buy side, you really want an unfair advantage so that the multiple you're paying on cash flow is good right out of the gate, but then you know that you can bring something else to that acquisition. So how do you look at acquisitions now? Do you look strategically as far as customer base do you look you mentioned efficiencies what else can you bring to a deal now or how do you think about a deal compared to when it was just yourself in the beginning just looking at your first couple of deals yeah i mean honestly at the end of the day you're trying to make more money and so during the due diligence period i always list out a number of growth goals right it could be adding new products it could be finding a cheaper supplier. It could be using automation or technology to reduce expenses. One of our last acquisition, the old owner was using a credit card processing system and he was overpaying on it. And so we moved to a company called Payment Depot and we automatically saved $70,000 wow. on our credit card fees. And so I mean, that's a huge deal to the bottom line. That was a eight-figure business. And so they were doing a lot of sales on their website. And, you know, it's just looking for these little opportunities to make money. And that's what I like to do during my due diligences or even pre-due diligence is identifying growth goals or efficiencies, which I can utilize with my skill set or knowledge. Because at the end of the day, any acquisition that anyone does 
they're just trying to make their money back as quickly as possible. And that's what I try to do too. I love it. That makes a ton of sense. Awesome. And just before hitting record, we were talking about, you mentioned on your team currently, you're really involved in deal flow. And we started talking a little bit about you building a personal brand to drive deal flow. And I've been talking to a couple of investors about this recently. So I'd be interested, just a quick overview of how you feel that's benefiting you in searching for deals. Yeah. Whenever people hear my name, I think at least if they've heard another podcast about me or at least read our article, it instills automatic trust. It instills that experience. So for me, it's definitely been helpful in deal flow. So I've gotten a lot of private deal flow that comes with it. You know, if someone's heard my name or knows I'm in the market to buy a business, that's been helpful. Number two, it's been helpful when, you know, when I go through a broker and someone's trying to pick between two people and they've heard about me and what I've done with acquisitions. And it's always been to carry on the old owner's legacy and to grow that business. And so that helps for a seller to pick a buyer more easily. And then three, it's just, you know, I'm always looking to hire folks, whether it's customer service or whether it's marketing or product sourcing or CEOs. I've got a lot of people come to me that are looking for a way to work with me. And I've really enjoyed that kind of process of having that hiring process come to me instead of me looking elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's definitely, it's nice to have a warm introduction and then have a little bit more firepower when it comes to negotiating as well. And that's something we go really deep on with our clients. It's not just about getting an offer. It's about finding the best buyer for the deal. Not only can they close, can they raise finance if they need to, but also what's their plan after the deal because oftentimes like you said legacy even in a shorter business two three years old sometimes they've built the business to a point where we've had a number of clients recently where they're actually burning through capital really fast because of immense growth and it's getting uncomfortable for them to keep putting that cash back in or their personal credit is at risk because they've got credit lines on the business. So that's why they're looking to exit. And for them, they can see where this brand could potentially go. And there's a bit of ego behind that and thinking, well, I started this from nothing. And if I can pass it on to the next person, they could do something better with it. That's kind of cool to say as well. I exited here, but then that brand keeps going. So, and then if there's any sort of deal structure whatsoever, even if it's a simple short holdback, you want to make sure that the business is going to keep performing because that's what's going to pay you out, right? Whether it's a note or performance-based is even more important if it's a performance metric. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, just besides a personal brand, I mean, if you're able to build that brand up, people will come to you and say, hey, Shaquille, you're doing a great job. Is there any way I could invest in you? Is there any way I could invest in your acquisitions? And that alone just kind of really helps acquire more companies, acquire more talent. And it's it's super useful just building that brand up. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, awesome. And what's next? What's your big plan with all of this? You know, initially during this process of, you know, buying these companies, I remember I think your last guy on the podcast, he was talking about roll-ups and stuff. That was my initial goal was just to get everything together, sell it as a roll-up. And that's always going to be on the back of my mind. But I'm just enjoying this process of just buying companies, building this company culture, 
we just started EOS within our company. And it's just been fun, like having people with these ideas and, and just making an impact on their lives. The whole process has been fun. I think what's coming for me is I'm going to keep acquiring companies as long as I can. And as long as I'm making money, I'm going to keep buying. <laughs> I like it. And I love how simple you make everything sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, This is a good skill you have. I want to invest with you at this point. This is great. <laughs> So, um, Shaquille, this has been a ton of fun, but we, we're about to wrap up here. We've both got other things to do as much as we'd love to keep talking about this all day. But how can people reach out to you if they do want to just reach out, talk to you a bit more, or maybe even invest with you? Yeah, so you could reach out to uh, me through you know, LinkedIn. It's Shaquille Prasla, or I'll provide my email. It's Shaquille at ProClickVentures.com. Okay, excellent. We'll put that in the show notes as well over at truthaboutexits.com. So feel free to jump over there and grab that detail. But Shaquille, thanks so much for coming on the show and being open about the good and the bad of deal making. And I'm cheering you on from the sidelines here. I'm very excited to see where you go. And hopefully we'll get to catch up more now we're um, both in Austin. Cool, Corin. Good catching up with you. Take care. Cheers, mate. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Truth About Exits. Now, whenever you're ready, here are three ways I can help you. If your company is doing between 10 to 50 million plus in revenue, and you want help to plan your perfect exit to achieve the highest value and best deal terms possible, or if you'd like advice on acquiring other companies to continue to grow your company, we can help. Go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. There you'll see a simple form to tell us a little bit more about you, your company, and your goals, and my team and I will take it from there. So go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. The second way I can help is become a guest on our show. If you've had a successful exit, you want to share your story, or if you're actively acquiring other businesses and want to share your criteria with our audience, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash guest. Let's connect and I'd love to talk to you. The third way I can help you is one of my favorite things in the entire world is sharing the truth about exit stories with other entrepreneurs by speaking at events all over the world. So far, I've had the privilege of speaking at events in the US, Canada, UK, Spain, Germany, Ukraine, Czech Republic, over in Asia, China, Hong Kong, Thailand, and even Australia. If you'd like me to speak at your next event, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash speaker and tell me a little bit more about your event and we'll go from there. Thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next episode.